You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Welcome to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. I'm your co-host, Brandon Ware. And I'm here, Jess O'Reilly, your friendly neighborhood sexologist. And we're both here today, despite the fact that we had a little fight, really about nothing, last weekend. And it it was a reminder to me that I had committed to talking about what we fight about and how we resolve our arguments. So today, that will be our focus, what we're fighting about and our specific strategies for conflict resolution. But before we go there, I wanted to ask you about this, Brandon, because you have been through several AirPod or earphone sagas over the last couple of years. And a new study suggests that 20% of people with AirPods, those little wireless earphones, wear them during sex. Really? I'm very surprised by that. What are they listening to? A little bob, tragically hip. Really? I don't know. It's very Canadian of you. Are you familiar with the silent disco? Of course I am. Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Terry Crews. Okay, so the silent disco, you go to a... a disco is such a funny word, but you go to a club and they're playing music and there's off, there are often multiple DJs. So for instance, you might have three different DJs who are battling and everybody is wearing headsets. And so you can switch the channel of your headset to choose the DJ of your liking. And oftentimes it's a battle. So you might see that I'm on DJ with a little light red and I might see that you're on green and you look like you're grooving to a different beat and it looks kind of good. So I might switch to green. And then, you know, by the end of the night or at a specific time, one of those DJs triumphs as the one with the most people on their channel. And then that's not always how it works. Sometimes it's just a silent disco so that you can groove, you can have a good time and it doesn't disturb everyone else. So I picture my airpods being set to like some lovers rock reggae yours being set to i don't know what's your favorite music these days i listen to everything okay you know i've been listening to some weezer no (laughs) something with a bass oh bass okay yeah you know what i'm listening to because you just need to see me groove into the bass not the treble (laughs) brandon's just bragging that he thinks he can groove to the bass not the treble and he actually can he's good he can boogie it's what first attracted me to brandon was how he boogies So I picture I'm listening to one thing, you're listening to another. Our hips are not going to jive during sex if we're listening to different music. No, I want to bring some people on that wear AirPods during sex because I want to know what you're listening to. And you've had some tragedies with these these wireless headsets in the past. I I did. I had an epic uh, story and the Coles notes is I ordered this German engineered and designed wireless earpods that or airpods earbuds that worked in the water for swimming or on land for training after much research they were delivered i walked out of my house like a slow motion replay in a movie one fell out of my ear and i chased it into the drain the sewer drain down the street from our house and i was on my hands and knees crawling after it as it fell in and Yes, that thus begun the six-month saga to try and get them fixed. Right, so he ordered another one, and then it wouldn't pair with the other one. And it was just this whole thing that just kept costing you money, like piling money into a car, and you never got to wear those 
ear pods or whatever they're called. Now you have AirPods. You don't wear them during sex. Thank goodness, because given your record, they just fall out. I don't wear the AirPods. I just wear white socks. White socks yeah. during sex. Socks and sandals. No. Yeah, that's it. That's, that's my thing. very much in style right now. The white socks with the slip-on rubber sandals. Can't get behind that. That's just not my jam for me. I don't know. You're saying it in a way you're like, if you want to wear that, you can wear that, Jess. I'm not yucking somebody else's yum. Not even their sock yum? No. All right. So AirPods during sex, yay or nay, you let us know. And then another study is on my radar today. This is really interesting to me. Researchers from the University of British Columbia examined data from a nationally representative survey of Canadians, 2,000 adults, and they found that 4% of those who are in relationships right now are in an open relationship, 4%. 20% have been in an open relationship in the past, so one in five, that's in line with some of the American data. And more than one in 10, a total of 12% report that an open relationship is their ideal relationship type. So 12% identify as most strongly inclined toward being in an open relationship. So does that surprise you, babe? It does surprise me. It surprises me the number of people, not that are in open relationships, that have been at some point, because I think most people would be just surprised to think that one in five have been in an open relationship. And uh, I also wonder about the age range of that uh, study, because I'm curious as to whether or not it's tilted more heavily in favor of younger, a younger demographic that is more open or receptive to alternative types of relationships that will stand the test of time, perhaps, or help stand the test of time? Well, so these Canadians, first of all, these are Canadians, so they're not just people, folks. This, they're between 18 and the age of 94, so about <laughs> half men and women. And over half of them, 55%, were married or living with a romantic partner. So 18 to 94. Mm -hmm. And if 55% if, if of them are married and the average age of marriage is, I think, around 31 for women and 33 for men, we're not talking about 22-year-olds here. It's all the 80-plus-year-olds uh, that are open types of relationships. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's more accessibility if they're in a home, they're living in a community. It's just more logistically plausible. They don't have to raise children because, I mean, being in a polyamorous relationship, for example, or, you know, we use different language. When we say open relationship, what we're talking about is a consensually non-monogamous relationship. It is logistically challenging and there are additional responsibilities. Of course, there are additional sources of support, but I would think it might get easier as you get into your 70s and 80s, and perhaps your responsibilities aren't so demanding. That's what I was going to say. Fewer responsibilities. And I've heard that the dating scene for people, not for people who live in those active retirement homes, is quite uh, busy. Who was telling me that it can get like, there's a lot going on. It's, uh, what is that? What was that TV show? Not 90210. Um, there was the one in the 90s where they all live in a in a Beverly Hills. Oh, the one that nobody about. admits to seeing, Melrose Place. Melrose, yeah. You have so to take like a lie detector test to prove that you've never seen Melrose Place. Okay. I think that's from Seinfeld or from one of those shows. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we were also talking about Seinfeld and how for Brandon and I, I, we were sort of in some ways, I mean, at my age, I'm sort of between generations, but... Seinfeld, you know, I, I didn't grow up watching Seinfeld, but I watched the reruns. And every day of your life, there is some sort of Seinfeld reference. 
But there's an entire generation now who hasn't seen Seinfeld. So I'm hoping Netflix will pick up Seinfeld so that not only can we rewatch them, but so that younger folks will, you know, say, uh, be able to make the references about the pretzels making them thirsty or, you know. I saw something yesterday in the sink and it was packaged for Fusilli. And I immediately thought, Fusilli Jerry! That's what I thought. Exactly. And so is this next generation not going to know about Seinfeld references? And if that's the case, what is our Seinfeld? Because I was thinking that it's Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, maybe even The Office. Okay, The Office, yeah. And I think of like my younger cousin who's 18 years old. She wa- she watched The Office on Netflix. But I, I like, I was thinking Brooklyn Nine-Nine. But I think one of the challenges, of course, is that there's more programming than ever because of the way we stream it. And so you don't have the same concentration where part of why we watched Seinfeld was it was the only thing on at the time. They, they played it at, you know, I don't know, six o'clock at night when you got home from school. And, and then when, when you and I were older and working in the bars, I think they played it at like two in the morning. But Brooklyn Nine-Nine is great, not just because I like the show, but also the representation and the different types of uh, relationships and people in that show are more reflective of, I think, what people are um, looking for in television today, which yeah. is great. They're getting there. Slowly, yeah. surely, yeah. hopefully. They're getting there. All right, so one more study I want to quickly talk about as I procrastinate talking about our fight. You mean your fight? <laughs> my fight, yeah. My, <laughs> my fight, fight with myself. Uh, a study suggests that millennials are giving up a big milestone in order to save for a home. They are skipping giving up marriage because the, because of the cost of real estate. So you're in real estate. I am. The average price of a home in Toronto right now, single family home? Let's just say a lot. I mean, it's almost uh, almost a million dollars in the downtown core. And I'm being very conservative with my expectations if you're trying to buy a low-rise home. Right. And so it is really challenging to buy a home. And uh, they're skipping marriage because of the cost. Because, you know, with marriage comes the cost of an engagement ring and spending tens of thousands of dollars on a wedding. And so they're skipping the wedding to save for a house. And I just want to offer the reminder that a wedding doesn't have to cost you tens of thousands of dollars. You can get married without buying an engagement ring. You can save for a house and have a wedding if you you know, stop making your wedding a financially burdensome affair. Now, if you think the institution of marriage is outdated, hmm, I hear you. And if that's why you don't want to get married, I think that's a really good choice for yourself. But if you do want to get married and you're only avoiding it because of the costs, just remember that a wedding doesn't have to break the bank. And I was actually on the Global Morning Show here in Canada talking about the financial stress of a wedding, not only on the couple, but on the bridesmaids, the groomsmen, and about a third of wedding party participants report that the financial strains of the wedding caused tension and strain between them and their friend, that being the bride and groom. Uh, 37% have declined being in a wedding party because of the associated costs. It seems the ante continues to be upped, so not only do you have to buy the shoes or rent the tux or get the dress, but you may have to host an event. If there is a bachelor party or a bachelorette, they're oftentimes out of town, which can be hundreds or thousands of dollars. And we were talking about, you know, what what is a fair expectation? And I think there is no standard fair expectation, but the reason I think most people run into conflict is that they have secret 
expectations. They have expectations of their friends, but they don't say it out loud. They don't say, hey, I'd love for you to be in my wedding party. And just so you know, that will entail a bachelor party in Miami, an engagement party, you know, someplace else, a pre- wedding lunch, uh, you know, $500 for attire, and I'd like you to help host this or that. They don't say those things. So we have these secret expectations and then we get frustrated when people don't meet them. But nobody can meet your expectations unless you're clear about it. I'm surprised at how, like you said, the ante has been upped. Because when I reflect back on when we got married, we've only been married for 13, just over 13 years. And even then, I mean, my friend, my, my best man, who threw the my, uh, sorry, my stag. It was a night out. We went drinking. We, you know, went and played. I think we played paintball. I probably get to shoot everybody with paintballs. And that was kind of it. Had a great time. But now you're right. You're going to Miami. You're hosting a party in advance. Like it just, seems like it's a much more expensive endeavor. Yeah, and that's fine if you're comfortable with that, but you can't expect your expectations to be met by everybody else. And you have to remember, this is your wedding. This is not somebody else's wedding. So I I do think sometimes expectations are A, too high, and B, just not clearly communicated, right? And so remember that money is not a measure of the relationship. Just because I don't want to invest X dollars into a specific event doesn't mean I don't care about you. And because I was reading all the different wedding boards and doing research for that story for Global, and not only do weddings put a strain on relationships without the financial commitment, but so many people in the wedding parties are no longer friends with the bride and groom after. Sometimes, you know, life happens and you go your separate ways, but oftentimes it's because of conflict rooted in the wedding. I was reading stories about a brother who was a best man during his speech for his brother's wedding got engaged on stage and so that caused a rift. Oh, stealing the thunder. Yeah, I yeah, so I mean, I guess everybody will have a different opinion on that. I was reading one where a mother took a couple of the wedding cash envelopes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna bite my tongue right now. Oh, you don't want to say anything? No. No. We we've got our own story, but we're not we're not gonna bring that up. So, you know, as I said last night at last week, please stop planning your weddings and start planning your marriages. If you think planning a wedding is stressful, you're probably gonna find a lifetime of commitment, cohabitation, uh, cultivating intimacy, and possibly co-parenting, if that's what you plan to do, even way more overwhelming. So forget the menu, forget the flowers, forget the napkins, don't worry about the seating arrangements, and redirect that energy into talking to your partner about how you plan to spend your lives, how do you plan to spend your money, how do you plan to integrate your families, your in-laws into your lives, how do you plan to raise kids if you plan on doing that, how do you plan to have sex, potentially, with only one person, until death do you part, if you're part of that 88% for whom an open relationship is not the ideal format. They're going to wear AirPods. That's how they're going to fix it. (laughs) This is the answer. That's the answer. This is the answer. All right, so I've been putting it off, but let's go to the matter at hand, the one that I've been avoiding. Our fights and our arguments. I mentioned over the weekend... We got into a tiff on Saturday afternoon, and we were in Montreal for the weekend. It was the Canada Day long weekend, and we had a really lovely weekend in Montreal. If you've never been to Montreal, it's a nice kind of blend with, obviously, it's in Canada, but a strong European influence. So we spent most of our time walking around the neighborhoods, the cafes, and enjoying their food markets. 
And Brendan, I got to ask, do you even remember, do you remember what we were fighting about on Saturday? just thinking that. I don't remember what we were arguing about. And that- I, I do this though. As soon as we get into an argument, I feel like I get flooded and I can't even remember what we started arguing about. So if you're not in the middle of the argument thinking about the argument, what are you thinking about? I'm thinking about AirPods and what I'm going to listen to next. No, I'm oftentimes probably trying to think about a few things, being right, uh, catching myself about how I'm trying to be right and recognizing that I shouldn't be focused on that, sometimes my thought process is totally counterproductive. I also have the feeling, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you're thinking about making sure I'm not upset at you. Oh, definitely. That's the first thing I think about is that absolving myself of responsibility. And in the heat of the moment, because I know that that's my default, what I go to, catching myself and you know moving forward constructively can be a very difficult thing to do. And on top of all that, I am moody. I'm a moody dude. We're actually going to, I wanted to talk about that. Uh, should I tell the story of, because I do remember what we were fighting about. I'm glad. I'm glad that somebody remembers. And if I tell the story, it's going to sound ridiculous because it's, it's so ridiculous. So I'm, I'm going to try and tell it. So we're walking home after a long, long day and uh, we're, we're walking back to the hotel and I was going to go into a store Oh yeah. to try on a dress. And I kind of stepped in and you didn't come in and you said, you know what, I'm just going to wait out here. And then I said, oh, you know what, forget it. I'm not even going to go. And so you thought I was upset that you didn't come in. And then I got upset because you were accusing me of being upset. (laughs) (laughs) And then we were kind of, you know, quiet on the walk home. It wasn't very far from there. And so I was really frustrated because, hmm, I was frustrated because I just didn't really care about trying on this dress. And I was like, oh, if he doesn't feel like coming in, it's kind of a good reason for me not to go in. And I'm not a big shopper and I definitely don't like trying things on. So you're not coming in. Just encourage me not to go in. But you thought that I was upset that you weren't coming in. And so then I was frustrated because I was thinking, oh my God, why do I always have to be 100%? Why why do I have to, I don't know, make sure that he's fine? And then you were thinking like, oh, well, why do I have to check in on her? Why does Why do I need to come with her? Why does she need me by her side? And neither of those things was even true basically, I didn't really care about trying on this dress. And I was like, oh, there was a dress in the window, by the way. I probably wasn't going to buy it. It's from a brand I don't really shop at. And uh, anyhow, we we were just, I think, tired. And we resolved it by talking that time. So we, you know, I was talking about how I felt that you were accusing me of being upset and how I think sometimes you're paranoid, which is not a nice word, but that's what I said, uh, that that I'm not okay and that you're not okay unless I'm okay and that's a lot of pressure on me. I would agree. I also would like to blame the bartender for (laughs) pouring me a very large Manhattan that I had consumed right before we got into the argument. And it's not that I was drunk. No. But I do find that if I... Let's be honest, it was a big drink. Like it was a Montreal-sized drink. Yeah, so you only had one drink, but you're not really a drinker. I forgot about the Manhattan. Yeah, it was a cup of booze, like a large cup. So I consumed it, felt fine. Like I said before, I can be a little moody. And we went outside, 
got into the argument, but again, I'm going to blame the bartender for pouring that big, big drink. I get argumentative when I drink. I totally forgot about that. And I, it, again, Brandon, you don't drink. Like you don't. No, no really I'm not drink. a big drinker. So me, definitely. I mean, that's that's a different story. <laughs> but you had one drink. I forgot. You you get a little edgy. You're not aggressive, and you don't notice that you're drunk because you only have the one drink. You know, I really like that you're bigging up this one drink because it was like four or five shots of booze. Oh come on, come on. It come was. On. Did you not see? It was a large cup of. It was a Manhattan. Anyway, it was delicious. <laughs> so we ended up resolving it and enjoying the evening. And it didn't take too long, but it, you know, it wasn't a 30-second resolve. So I wanted to talk about the three ways I was reflecting upon how we resolve arguments and disagreements and three approaches that we take. So the first, besides blame the bartender, and of course, <laughs> they, we talk about this, being drunk obviously is not an excuse for poor behavior and you weren't, you weren't drunk. No, I wouldn't say that on I was edge. drunk. But number one, and this is such a big deal, and I think this addresses more than 50% of our arguments and oftentimes nips them in the bud before they start. We admit when we're cranky. We admit when moodiness is to blame. So sometimes arguments are about nothing. They're not indicative of an underlying issue. They're not intended to move the relationship forward. You don't need to have them to improve understanding because they are simply a result of a bad mood or, you know, being worn out or a lack of patience. And it can be hard to know that you're the one at fault and to, to step back and say, mea culpa. And it can feel, I think, overwhelming to take responsibility when you're physiologically flooded, when you're worked up, and when you've been maybe diving into this argument for 10, 15, 20 minutes about some ridiculous issue. And, and it can feel ridiculous to backpedal after you've been trying to prove a point or show how right you are. And it, it can be really difficult to say, okay, yeah, I admit everything I said doesn't really make sense. And I'm sorry <laughs> because I'm, I, I brought my bad mood into this scenario. It's not about you. It's not about the relationship. It's not even about the issue at hand. I'm just having a bad day or, you know, I'm feeling hormonal in my case. And to say mea culpa only really works if your partner is not in it to win it. If you have a partner is, who is focused on winning an argument or being right, you're not going to want to stop and say, oh, okay, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm being unreasonable, please forgive me. You need a partner who's willing to look past your temporarily irrational behavior and see the big picture and say, yeah, I get it. Now, this doesn't mean your behavior is excused. It doesn't mean that I'm okay with you acting any way you want. But it's, I may not excuse it, but I understand it. So it's not okay to lash out. Of course you have to apologize, and I have to do this all the time. And hopefully you have a partner who is willing to let it go, not because they excuse your behavior, but because they understand it. You know, maybe they understand that you're cranky because you're tired or hungry or worn out from all the emotional labor you do on a daily basis. And so they don't excuse your behavior, but they understand it. Maybe as you, as I said, you know, I get hormonal during, you know, and on Saturday too, it was, I was premenstrual. So it was kind of this concoction of <laughs> so, so was I <laughs> well, of course you can get hormonal as well and 
So if I can admit to it and I have a partner like you who's willing to let it slide sometimes and accept that, you know, I'm human, I'm imperfect, I screw up, you can resolve so many of your arguments without hours of hashing things out. And so that's the number one way I would say we overcome tiffs and arguments, disagreements and conflict is that we're like, oh man, yeah, I can stop and say I'm being unreasonable. Now, if I were to call you out for being unreasonable or you were to call me out, I don't think it would go as smoothly. But when you call yourself out and you've got a partner who isn't going to judge you, isn't going to say, I told you so, isn't going to say, yeah, that's why I'm right. I was right again. You started this. This is on you. And I'm not saying we never do that. Like we're human and we can be jerks sometimes. But that, that would be the number one way. I think we resolve issues. And you were talking actually on the weekend. We weren't fighting. We were just on a walk. And you were talking about how you're more moody lately. I am more moody. I've been moody for months. And I think the difficulty is, is some of us, perhaps people that are listening, have to put up a, not a facade, but you have to put on a front because you don't want to share your moodiness or how you're feeling with other people. You don't want them to know. I'm, I tend to be more private. I don't want people to know if I'm not feeling great with you or with myself. So... When I'm out, it's I'm almost almost feel like I'm acting sometimes. So when I come home and I can be myself, I might go back to that moody feeling that I was uh, that I I've been feeling the entire day, but it gets dumped in this relationship, which can be really hard. You know, I do the same thing because my job often requires me to be up and energetic and happy and funny, and you know, I'm I like to entertain and I like to have a good time. And then sometimes I come home and I, I just don't want to talk to anyone. I don't, I don't even want small talk. I don't want to, you'll ask me sometimes how an event went and I don't even want to talk about it. I just want to sit and be quiet and rest my voice and rest my mind. And I, I think I've probably talked about this before. Sometimes I know I come home from a business trip, for example. Maybe I've given five or six speeches and I have nothing left for you. And that's also not fair. So I have to schedule my time so that not only do I have positive energy left for you, but also for myself. But I also understand where you're coming from when you come home and that you need that break. And I, I get it. If you don't want to talk to me, I don't take it personally. I know you've expressed to me how you feel and I move forward. But I could tell you how my, when we get into an argument, the exact path that I'm going to take and I have to fight it <laughs> to stop it from happening. When I reflect back on that argument that we had on the weekend, it was something happened to initiate it, whether whatever it was. I then probably say something that doesn't make sense or that justifies my position, which in this case was wrong. And you do not like to, I don't think it's that you don't like to be wrong. You are, um, at how do fault. I say? It? Yeah, you don't want to be at fault because you never want to be responsible for making me feel bad. Like in some yeah. ways, I find it benevolent, but that doesn't make it any less tiresome. No. So anyway, something goes wrong. I usually try to absolve myself of responsibility. That may be accompanied by stupid or <laughs> statements that lack any sort of um, validity. And and then I usually realize that my statements lack that validity or or context. And then I feel like I've invested. So then I try to defend them. And then after a few minutes, <laughs> I realize that the statements that I made were stupid or that they were incorrect. And that's when I catch myself. 
after a few minutes and I'm like, okay, I'm wrong. And I do, it's really hard, but I do it. I'll eventually say, you know, assuming that I have done this, I'm wrong. I want to move forward. I want to fix this. I'm sorry. Or, you know, what I said was incorrect. And then, and then things tend to get more, um, more positive in the, in the argument. Yes. Would, you, would you agree? Yeah. And then sometimes I'm stubborn. Sometimes you'll do that and I'll be so pissed off over what just happened that I'll be like, oh, it's too late. And I don't say it in those words, but I'll try and argue my point more and want you to see my perspective. Even though you've just told me that you acknowledge it, I'll want you to tell me harder. <laughs> so I, <laughs> tell I, me harder. I think I can be too demanding at times. And that, that's what happens when you're worked up, when you're angry, when you're sad, when you feel threatened, when you feel hurt, uh, when you feel frustrated, or as we said, when we're just, when we're moody. And I get snappy. And yesterday I was snappy. I was having... Really? <laughs> oh, I didn't know. I didn't notice. <laughs> I was having a kind of a, a bad period day and I could feel myself getting snappy. And I remember saying something to you upstairs and then coming and sitting on your lap and apologizing because I knew I was wrong. And you're you're sweet about it. You're not like, yeah, you shouldn't have done that. Or yeah, see, you you understand. And it's not, again, it's not that my behavior is excused. It's that you show understanding. And I think that's what makes the willingness to admit that perhaps you're moody or perhaps you're just cranky. That's what makes that willingness to admit it diffuse the entire situation. In our relationship, I don't think that um, digging in has ever really accomplished what either one of us wants to accomplish. Of course. And you're all going to have your moments. I have my moments where I want to be right, where I want you to see my perspective, where I want you to admit to a wrongdoing. (laughs) And so uh, I realized though after that, yeah, that doesn't really do much. I think in the heat of the moment, what I feel is that I want to be heard. I want to be understood. But really, uh, I think part of that is a, a veil for wanting to be right. And so crankiness or admitting that you're wrong in the moment or that, you know, you're fighting about nothing is, is one way we resolve, I'd say, about half of our arguments. And they don't really become big arguments because of that. But sometimes you do have to hash things out. Sometimes we have to talk about the underlying feelings, fears, insecurities. We have to have uncomfortable conversations. And we have to admit when we're feeling ongoing frustration, anger, sadness, neediness, and even if we feel resentment building. And we've had over the years so many of these more hashing out arguments or conversations. And some have been kind of calm and productive and some have been more explosive. And I'd say most of them go up and down where you think you're coming to the end to resolve things and then bam, there's like another curveball. But when we have these conversations, I was reflecting back on a few of them and how they, how the ones that work, work. I, I kind of identified these three elements. The first is that, you know, you express why you're upset. The second is that I tell, I'll I'll speak for myself. So I tell you why I'm upset. I tell you what's really bugging me. And then I tell you what I want, right? Here's what I'm asking for. And then, and only then, (laughs) I try to admit my part in how I can address the first part. So here's how I can address whatever is bothering me. And I wish that I could reverse the order of number two and three so that I would take responsibility first and, and I'm kind of working on this. So to recap, 
here's why I'm upset. Here's what I want from you. Here's what I'm willing to do. And I wish I could kind of bring, I work on bringing that here's what I'm willing to do to the top because it's so disarming. And I do notice that when we are in a tense conversation or struggling with conflict, when one of us says, oh yeah, I admit I'm sorry. Because the other day I remember in the argument, you had said that you didn't like something I had said to you. And I can't remember specifically what it was or the way I had said it had seemed um, really hurtful or condescending. And so immediately I caught it and I said, yeah, you know what? You're right. I'm really sorry for doing that. And sometimes I wonder if I stop and I'm willing to apologize in the moment just because I know somebody's got to do it. Now, you're really good at this. Let me be clear. It's not like I'm always the first to apologize. But I do think as soon as one person says, yeah, I am really sorry, even if it's for nothing, even if it's for the smallest thing, for a tone or for the language or not even the real core issue, it disarms the other person and they're like, oh, this isn't a battle. This isn't a fight. This is us collaborating in a really intense way to find a solution because we're a team. I think that's the key variable for me or the key fact is we're trying to collaborate. Now, in the heat of the moment, I don't feel that way. In the heat of the moment, I'm angry or I'm upset. But I also think that you and I don't, it's not, I certainly have to catch myself. I don't ever want to go back at you. Like if you've hurt me, I want to hurt you back. I don't want to do that. But what I find is that I tend to fixate on the problem and it takes me a few minutes to think about, okay, chill out, think about what the root issue is here, fix it, and focus on that rather than how I'm angry about something that you've said, right? I think about, okay, we're arguing, don't get upset about something that was said that that doesn't address the root issue. So what are we fighting about? We were fighting the other day because I didn't, um, I, I, I thought that you were upset because I stopped you from going into that store, which in fact, I didn't. You, the root issue in that argument or part of it was certainly that you have to be a 10 out of 10 all the time in this relationship and that I was also wrong in assuming that I was stopping you from going into that store. So I ended up getting upset about everything else, kind of blowing a gasket and it was only when I had kind of calmed down a few minutes later that I realized, okay, let's get back to the issue at hand. Yeah, this is the problem. I'm sorry, apologize for how I said you know you know things that didn't make any sense or whatever move on and you had even said there was something uh disarming about what your partner said where it's like we want to work i want to try and make this better yeah and and i mean i have to take some responsibility for that argument too because i think like i said i was testy i was in a mood um I, I kind of overreacted where I was like, oh God, like wh why do I have to reassure him that everything's right? But maybe you weren't even asking for that. Maybe I could have just said, hey, yeah, it's not a big deal from the get-go. So, I mean, it wasn't just on you. But I do think that, that the conversation flows in the, here's why I'm upset, here's what I want you to do, and here's what I'm willing to do. And I think if when we have those three components, because we don't always, <laughs> uh, when we kind of follow that formula, and, and train ourselves to naturally follow that formula, we, we end up with, you know, a more positive outcome. And, uh, and there's a third thing I want to bring up before we go. So sometimes it's about admitting you're cranky and just letting the argument go. Sometimes it's about hashing it out with those kind of three steps for us. I'm not saying this is how you should do it. I'm saying that's how Brandon and I do it. And the third is physical touch. 
And it's really, really simple and really easy. And it's something anyone can do if you let go of your ego and get over the need to win or prove your point or be right. And Brandon, you taught me this from the very beginning of our relationship. You always come to me physically. You come over and you touch me or you hold me or you put your hand on me or you try and give me a hug even when I'm stubborn. And I'm like, don't touch me. And I think it's because physical touch is, you know, one of perhaps your primary love language in some ways. You you like to be touched and you like to touch. He's petting a furry pillow right now as we speak. And it won't work for everyone, but it works for us. And it's not a magic touch. It's really just, I think the reason it works for me is that you show a willingness to push through the anger, to push through the hurt, to push through the need to be right, to let go of your ego and simply touch because you care, because we have a special relationship that does involve touch. And we know, of course, the benefits of touch in terms of like lowering cortisol levels to reduce stress. And when you touch, you sleep better, which is good for your mood and your energy and your cognitive function. We know that when you touch, you feel closer, you feel more cooperative, you trust more, you feel more relaxed. So there's the chemical component, but there's also the subjective component to me that is a reminder from you that Whatever's going on, you just, you care about me. I do. And it's not easy sometimes. I don't know why I naturally reach out. I know that I always try to push through, even when I'm irritated, I always want to fix the problem because I know that if I just keep trying to find a resolution, have a conversation that inevitably something good is going to come out of it. But that simple gesture of, trying to hold your hand or putting my hand on your shoulder, on your back, whatever, goes a long way. And I don't know where I learned that from, but it's working. I feel like you, there's a natural desire to be physically close. Because even when you're asleep, if I roll over to the other side in the bed, you roll after me. Yeah, until I get too hot and then I roll away. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then I'm cold, man. So, you know, I thought we'd share our approach to how we resolve tension or how we ease tension and resolve conflict. And it's not necessarily going to be yours, but those are our kind of three approaches. And they're not always conscious. There are things that I've identified as I kind of looked back and reflected upon how we manage tension. And it may not, as I said, as I said be your approach. So I'm interested in your approaches. So definitely share them with us. I want to stop there. When we talk about our own relationship, I feel... I feel grounded, but I also feel tired. I find it really easy to talk about studies and to answer other people's questions and to, you know, provide insights based on what the research says or even to interview other people. But talking about our own relationship is such an interesting experience for me because I went the first however many years of my career with never talking about us. And so to, to come out and share for me is really challenging uh, because... I don't know, it's a private part of our life and partly I want to protect it. And then there's also the self-consciousness piece where, you know, I'm like, oh, do we sound like jerks? Do we, <laughs> you know, it, what find, do people think? <laughs> I, I find it therapeutic. Maybe I'm I'm ignorant to the fact that people are listening and, and judging, but I actually find that every time we have a conversation, it gives me opportunity to think back mm-hmm. and I find it a positive um, exercise. Hmm. I really do. Because I don't think... That when I normally have an argument or a fight, that I spend the time to have a conversation about what worked and what didn't. Mm-hmm. And 
for me, doing this allows me an opportunity to think about, okay, the next time I'm going to do those three things and hopefully the argument gets a little bit uh, easier, to, easier to resolve. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's a little bit of a public debrief. <laughs> yeah, just don't judge me. <laughs> We're going to stop there. I want to say a big thank you to Desire Resorts. Please check them out on Instagram at Desire Experience. They have multiple clothing optional resorts on the Mayan Riviera, as well as couples only clothing optional cruises in Europe. Be sure to check them out. Thanks for chatting with me, babe. That was amazing. Like I just said. (laughs) Folks, wherever you're at, have a wonderful week. We'll be back every Friday with a new episode. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life. Thank you.